All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this special Earth Day edition of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. This will be our second podcast of the week, but we're actually going to be publishing one tomorrow, so it's a little bit confusing because this one's going Saturday, we've got one coming out Sunday, but we did just do one from last Sunday called Ghostbusters, and then tomorrow is going to be War Dogs, which we already recorded just before this, which... I think at the end of that one, we were talking about the time machine, the DeLorean that we got to 88 miles an hour, and here we are. Earth Day, talking about the Lorax. We have a special guest. First, I want to welcome our friend Robert, co-host extraordinaire, drawing a tiger, a child tiger, baby tiger right now. How you doing, Robert? I'm doing it, man. I'm loving life, and, you know, contrary to what uh, the propaganda says, I actually love the Earth. And I am a capitalist, so imagine that. I know that's like making some brain cells like trip out right now, but it's actually true. Um, even if you're a capitalist, you can love love the place where you live, and you have an incentive, an inherent desire to uh, take care of that place. And uh, private property tends to see that happen, believe it or not, even though uh, what we're going to be talking about seems to fly in the face of all that. So, yeah, I'm here, I'm excited, and let's do this. Maybe we can talk about um, our special guest a little bit. Yeah, so we do have a special guest. We met him in the Tom Woods group probably a few months back now. We were talking, uh, chatting back and forth, and mentioned that we might want to do a show about the Lorax, and he said that he might do some uh, poetry or rhyming to bring on to the show, so I think he's feverishly working on that right now as we're talking. His name is Kevin LeCure, and you can find his work at klecu.com. It's a website where he blogs at. But Kevin, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, Dan. Thanks. How are you? Doing great, man. Uh, so one thing we like to do at the beginning is just have our guests kind of talk about themselves a little bit, where, where you're from, how you came into uh, you know, the Liberty style, and maybe mention any projects you might be working on so we can promote your stuff. All right. Well, uh, I'm, I'm an engineer, live in a small town in Georgia, and commute down towards Atlanta pretty much every day, uh, kind of living a normal life. Um, I, I grew up uh, overseas, uh, kind of a unusual, not, not unusual circumstances, but uh, different from most people in that I lived on tropical islands for most of my childhood, really all of it. From the time I was four till I was 18, I lived on three small, smaller tropical islands around the world. Uh, went with my parents who were missionaries at the time. And it was really cool to, you know, just live in different cultures and how uh, I don't see myself as part of any one culture, if you know what I mean. Like I, I've 
had so many cultures that I called home that I just have kind of turned them all into my own, if that makes sense. So your gender, or sorry, your culture fluid? <laughs> culture fluid. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. Okay. I'm going to use that. Your own personal melting pot, right? <laughs> exactly. So I came to the liberty movement, like I was telling you guys before the show, uh, through some college friends. I was in college at the time of the 2008 campaign, Ron Paul getting out there and spreading the message. And I had a lot of friends who, well, a few friends who were really uh, into the Ron Paul movement, even though they're, they weren't maybe as hardcore libertarian as I am now. And ironically, they're, I somehow became more libertarian and anarchist than even them. But uh, it was through those friends, uh, learned about Ron Paul and his message. Pardon me if my dog starts barking. Sorry. <laughs> I'll give him a minute to stop. <laughs> hey, down. Sorry about that. No worries, man. So let me pick up where I was. I uh, started listening to, to Ron Paul and um, after college, I started reading a lot of blogs from, you know, the, the Beltway Libertarian gradually moved towards uh, Cafe Hayek, Don Boudreau, Econ Talk was a big influence and uh, just came to the Tom Woods uh, podcast world there. And from there, it's, it's been an intellectual. I, I mentioned before I, I'd read Four New Liberty shortly after college and that was really influential as well as David Friedman stuff, machinery freedom. So I really like the intellectual side. And I think that's been the draw for me is that uh, there's, there's such a intellectual depth to the ideology of, of liberty and anarchy that you don't see in any other political movement. So, so Kevin, you were really convinced by the arguments because I, I would put myself in that category, but most statists that I talk to, you know, when you attack, not necessarily attack, you're just basically making arguments or pointing out the facts of economics, um, they'll often get very defensive and, and take it as an emotional attack. So that, you didn't need that emotional convincing. You just took it on the intellectual side of things, correct? Yeah, my personality is very much intellectual. I took a few years ago with my wife and where she worked at the time. We did these personality assessments, and I was like way on the rational, intellectual side of the spectrum. So that that is what convince, convinces and, and did convince me uh, about... The ideas of liberty, and it was the ideas more than anything. But like I said, you know, seeing so many cultures and having lived under uh, governments that were corrupt and governments that were racially biased and in ways that Americans could cannot imagine unless they've really been immersed in a different culture, also come to see just the uh, the immorality of power and authority and uh, in states and the way that that can ruin people's lives. So, so that, you didn't have that state indoctrination where you had some kind of irrational fear that they, without the state, like everything's going to go to hell. Yeah, just, yeah. We're just going to go at each other's throats all the time. Yeah, definitely not. And, 
authority. Yeah, and I, I didn't mention this to you guys, but I was uh, homeschooled all through uh, from first grade through twelfth grade until college, and so oddly enough, it kind of it was kind of homeschooled kind of correspondence to where I I would watch videos of classrooms and and take tests and all that. It was a kind of a conservative Christian school, and that. Do you well, remember? Do you remember from your schooling like how much statecraft did you learn and that sort of thing? I mean, it was a typical American conservative viewpoint for sure, and uh, that you know, Southern, not not the denomination Southern Baptist, but the that Southern uh, religious conservative background, and yet because. It was so soaked in, in Christianity, and it, that really was more important to them. Uh, mm. The the state through that the state was always secondary, you know. So the state mm. is the servant and and that kind of thing. Not that it's uh, not that it's some sort of um, savior. So I think that probably looking back that might have had some effect on my thinking and not seeing the state. And because I wasn't in a state school, not seeing the state as provider or savior of the world or the environment, like we're talking about today, or society. Right. Nice. I love it. I love it. Yeah, our good buddy Daniel here, who's also on the call, um, is going to be homeschooling his children and uh, for uh-huh. some of those exact same reasons. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big advocate of homeschool. I hope to homeschool my son's. Got one, one just turned uh, one in January, and a second one on the way in June. So we're gonna have our hands full for a couple of years, but uh, looking forward to that. And you know, I have to say, I, I'm just amazed. I look forward to to teaching my my son because my my one year old son, he is so intelligent, and he says like four words, and yet he understands. I feel like everything I say because. You know, you can tell him to do something fairly complicated, and you know that he understands it. You can just see it right. in his face. He understands like, he understands. Right. Yeah. right. It's like even if he can't awesome. say something back, he knows, and he's thinking those complicated abstract thoughts for sure. It's, just, it's really cool being a parent and, and seeing that that little mind growing and shaping. Absolutely. That's probably my favorite thing. Yeah, I'm big fans of that as well. We've got two young girls and a shotgun, so uh on <laughs> your boys there, Kevin. <laughs> Good thing we're way down here. <laughs> so, hey, uh, why don't we start talking about this movie? Uh, speaking yeah. of kids, this is one that I won't let my kids see. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the 1972 made-for-TV special and then a little bit about the um, more recent... CGI version, which came out mm-hmm. just a couple of years ago here. But Robert, why don't you give us a rundown? Because um, I know you got some good notes on that. And then we'll just start talking about some of the issues and scenes and some of the concepts that uh, we can draw from this anti-capitalist message by uh, one Dr. Seuss, whose real name, trivia time, Theodore Marx. Mm, not true. <laughs> but no, it might as well enough. be. I mean, you know, close enough. Okay. So the Lorax, um, for those who don't know, Dr. Seuss, Geisel, whatever you want to call him, um, was a very thinly veiled 
uh, artists who put into a lot of, if you want to call it political theory, into his work. Um, he really let his opinions known through what he did and disguised them as children's fables type stories. And the Lorax is, I don't know, maybe the most blatant of them all. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but it shows a flagrant, just laughably bad understanding of economics and capitalism and all the things that he whines and complains about in this story. And it's just filled with nonsense, just nonsense. Um, sure, pollution is a real thing, um, but <laughs> anyway, we'll get into it. Okay, so the Lorax tells the story of um, these creatures called Wunzlers, which are just people, but you never see them in the story. In the in the CG version, you see like real humans, but in the original, they're just like arms and legs that stick out of places. And they're called, or at least the one main character is called Mr. Wunzler. And maybe it's because he does, he's a one-and-done kind of guy. Who knows? But um, he's an entrepreneur. And he's riding along in his horse and carriage. And he comes across a field of trees. And these are like these amazing trees. They're kind of puffy on top. They look like a, I don't know, like a fluffy lollipop or something like that so he chops the tree down and he discovers how amazing and how fluffy and soft these trees are and this material that he makes and he knits it into a, an object he ends up making like a sweater a shirt but it turns out to be just the most amazing product ever because it could be any number of things and satisfy any number of needs and the lorax pops up he's the some invented creature who pops out of the tree when it gets cut down. And he says, I'm the Lorax and I speak for the trees. And he takes umbrage with the entrepreneur coming in, cutting down this tree because of the environmental damage that he's doing. Um, and the uh, Lorax comes up and he's making his case to Mr. Wunzler. Mr. Wunzler says, look at this amazing product I've made through my labor with this tree to make this amazing product that everybody's going to want. It's going to fulfill all these needs. And the Lorax is like, no one's going to pay for that. Don't be stupid. And uh, yeah, Mr. Says, uh, is like, you're crazy with greed. No one will buy it. Right. And uh, I would just want to invoke my Charlie Murphy here because he just passed recently and say, wrong, wrong. Lorax <laughs> is wrong. Yeah. It, um, the idea that the Lorax has this infinite knowledge of no one's going to want this amazing product that can fulfill so many desires is bizarre at best and flat out wrong. Um, Kevin, what do you have to think about this scene? You, you, you didn't see this version of the movie, but you actually read the text. So, so far have I gotten the text correct? Was it a yeah, so far it's following, that one is following the text. And I think... You've got it right. You know, the, the Lorax just in the, in the book, the Lorax just kind of pops out of nowhere. You, I remember seeing that in the newer movie too. It just kind of appears out of thin air and says, Hey, I speak for the trees. You know, I'm the, I'm the, um, the spokesperson for the trees and you can't just come here and, and chop these down. So yeah, you, right. you're great. Now, do you think, do either of you guys think that the Lorax has any kind of like a, 
private property argument to make against uh, Mr. Wunsler here. Um, it seems to me that Mr. Wunsler is going to this open land and he is homesteading it. At least he seems to be, but we're not, we can't be sure because, you know, it's a children's story and he doesn't get into that sort of thing. It just appears to be some wild land. Now he doesn't fence it in, but he does build houses. He builds a factory to start and he starts chopping down all these trees, but the Lorax is essentially, he never makes like the private property argument, but he makes the, hey, come on, trees, trees take a long time to grow and, the seeds take a long time to germinate and blah, 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 blah. He really just kind of make, kind of makes like a complaintive environmental argument. He never says like, you have no right to do this sort of thing. Um, exactly. Well, when the first tree does get cut down, that's when the Lorax emerges from the tree stump. And so it appears that he was maybe living in the tree and he says, what are you doing to my tree or my, my tree stump? And um, <clears throat> the once there's like, <clears throat> Well, I just want the top so you can keep the tree stump, tree stump part. <laughs> right. Okay. Yes, that does happen. So do you think you think Lorax has a private property argument to make there? Well, I mean, if he's a sentient being and not an animal and does have um, the ability to have property rights, then if he's living in that tree, then sure. Um, but I don't okay, think wait. that's the point that's being made. Right. I agree with you there. But let's say, let's grant him the one tree. But he claims like all the trees. He complains about every tree being cut down. Right. Yeah. yeah and and I don't think say, what's that thing you've made out of my truffula tuft? Right. Mm. So initially, like the first tree and maybe the surrounding trees, like whatever the technological unit of homesteading is, clearly it can't be the entire forest of these trees. Um, but you know maybe the surrounding trees are considered like his yard or something like that. Because he wasn't really using them other than living in the one tree. So I do want to make a point that when the one sir first arrives on the scene, he says, all my life looking for trees such as these. So presumably he's, you know, in his 20s or 30s. He's never seen one of these before. So he discovers these trees and how amazing they are and they can be turned into a thousand different products that satisfy all these wants and desires by consumers. So just on that alone... It makes me think that the whole premise of this entire story is is incorrect because I think it's sold as an idea of all of the trees and all of the world are cut down and all this pollution runs rampant. But it seems to me like if he is just now discovering these trees and he's been alive for a long time, that this is a very small enclave of these trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. It seemed to me watching it that this is a, a corner of the world where these trees exist. Because he called in his family to come, you know, work in this factory. And they had presumably never seen these trees or developed these trees or whatever. He's the first one to ever do so. So it seemed like he was some sort of an explorer, adventurer, or whatever that happened to stumble upon these things or was in search of these things or something like this. And, uh, yeah, so you can imagine him in, like, the wilderness. Yeah, so I think this story is, like, sort of wants it both ways. It wants to say, okay, he's just discovered these, but it affects every tree in the world. And so it's kind of this uh, out-of-scale kind of presentation of, of the universe. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it's very commie, like very anti-capitalist, uh, which is kind of odd for a guy who sold 600 million books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he didn't make any money off of that, though. Yeah, he probably did. <laughs> You know, 
we're talking about how the the Lorax claims the trees and uh, further down later on in the story he he claims the uh the animals too he calls them his barbalutes his swami swans his uh what's the the humming fish and talks and is complaining to to Wunsler that all these animals are being driven off the land so you're right he's he's halfway to making a proprietarian or proper, private property claim, and yet he never quite gets there. Like if if this was really the Lorax's property, then you know it, it could be solved pretty simply. The the morality tale would be very different from from the morality tale that most people take away from it. Right, Definitely. and I'd argue that Wunsler homesteads it, and it becomes his land, and that because he's doing a thriving business, satisfying all these wants from consumers. I mean, they're selling like hotcakes, and he's able to improve his process, get more efficient, optimize, presumably create even more product at lower prices and satisfy more wants and desires. Why would he not take great care of the inputs that he uses for his business? His livelihood at stake here, and he's just going to blindly go out and chop everything down? That doesn't make any sense. It's mm-hmm. sort of like another conflation of the tragedy of the commons argument, but in a perverse way, because if this guy, in fact, homesteaded it, and I'd argue that he did, the oncer man, then he has an incentive to be a good steward of it, to take care of the capital stock, to make sure that he has inputs for uh, continued production and maintaining the value of it. And so I feel like, Dr. Seuss or Dr. Marx or whatever we want to call him is sort of trying to play both sides of the argument and just part of each argument and only the parts that support his uh, sort of commie claims. Right. Like there's a scene towards the end where um, the Lorax is complaining about the pollution and Wunsler is kind of a little bit sympathetic to the pollution. Um, But then he gets like his stock earnings notice and he says well what do you want me to do do you want me to fire everybody so this is incredibly inconsistent if he's balking at firing everybody but yet he doesn't take the concern of hey i might be running out of trees he knows he's going to be i mean it's incredibly short-sighted it's just insanely short-sighted i mean wouldn't you look at supply and demand if you're if you're producing a product you're all about the acquisition of the 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 materials that are needed to produce the products that you sell. So, yeah, it 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 seems to be like capitalists are just these short-sighted idiots that don't think about the nature of the planet, but they have right. every incentive to. So, yeah. Right. And it's yeah, totally sure. backwards in government-owned property that uh, they lease out, say, the extraction rights for a, a resource like oil or minerals or trees. So they'll lease, it, right. lease out the rights to what you can extract, but not the property itself. So mm-hmm. it's sort of a license to go and rape the land, if you will. And this is this is under the government stewardship. This is mm-hmm. the you know tragedy of the commons issue. This is what I imagine Dr. Seuss was advocating, and this is what actually causes the um, degradation in the environment, the pollution, and all of these things that. Uh, it, you know, environmentalists want to prevent, but they're using the, the apparatus of the state 
and it's backfiring on them. Like, if you really wanted to protect the Earth, you would privatize everything because everyone would then have an incentive in, in maintaining the value of their land. If there were any pollution, you know, crossing into someone else's land, they would have, uh, you know, a claim to prevent them from doing so. You know, there's all sorts of things that in a private property scenario, it would prevent so many of these uh, terrible things from happening. Yeah, it really does seem to be a conflation of corporations and government. He seems to be railing against industry when really it's the confluence of government that grants these short-term leases to, say, some whole acres and acres and miles of timberland for a short amount of time. And, yeah, the incentive is to just get as much resources as you can in the limited time you have and then be done with it. And hence you see the, the clear-cutting and the whatnots. But the, the show is so inconsistent. Um, at the end of the movie, there's Mr. Wunsler. There's like a little boy who is coming along and, you know, Wunsler is telling the story of the Lorax to this kid who's curious about what happened in this place. And at the end, he gives them the seed to the tree and says, here, this is on you to be a steward and to plant this tree and to plant more trees. Now, clearly, this is one. (laughs) Right. Clearly, this is Dr. Seuss saying it's on you, children, people of the world, to be good stewards to the planet, blah, blah, blah. But in the terms of the story, it makes literally zero sense. Why is he waiting till now? to come around to finally plant a tree and why is he putting the the obligation on this kid when clearly it it was in his best interest at the very beginning to start doing that it makes and it you see the next to the last line says grow a forest protect it from axes that hack and then the last line then the borax and all of his friends make him back so you see right there to protect it from axes so it it like i wrote in my article it's this uh, crazy mythical view, almost like this this uh, idea, this way of understanding the world, how humanity is opposed to nature. Humans aren't part of nature. It's somehow unnatural and imposing on nature. And so right. what I see out of the story is uh, propagandizing this idea that the the right thing to do for nature nature is to minimize human impact on it and and not even thinking of humans as part of the world and the ecology but as something that's separate and harmful to it right and we see this throughout environmentalists all the time this very anti-human mindset of well you all humans are just bad and you need to cut your carbon never thinking the economic costs the horrific backlash that would be imposed upon the poorest people in the world. Yeah, people already struggling to survive, and then you're going to outlaw whatever means they have to cook food or maintain warmth. You know, I mean, it's going to be a mass die-off if they get their way. And perhaps they'd be happy with that. It seems like environmentalists, they've been nicknamed uh, watermelons, right? Like green on the outside, red on the inside. It's all about control coming up with a reason for uh, them to have the, the levers of power in government, to have their regulations put into place so they can control humans and, you know, essentially, like, reduce the human population. I've, I've heard arguments for that. 
and it seems as if um, you know the the whole leftist uh, bent right now these days is to uh, say that white men are evil. And I think part of that stems from this environmental movement that said all humans are evil, and now they're just kind of like going through it with a fine tooth comb and getting it down to just white men are evil. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, you. Uh, it's a prevalent thought throughout the left that there are just too many people, and it's it's probably easy to get into that mindset when you're. You know, stuck in traffic somewhere or stuck in a line somewhere. There's just too many people around. But um, I like to point out that every every human is born with two hands and a brain, and we are an amazing species that is able to invent and solve problems. And if unleft alone to invent and solve problems, uh, who knows where our in- crazy inventive minds will take us in the future and what innovations may come without right the shackles yeah. of government. Yeah, like Julian Simon said, the human mind is the ultimate resource. I actually had that conversation some years ago. We were at a, a party, a, uh, uh, maybe the you know, baby shower, I don't know, some, some, some sort of party for some friends. And sat it with a young couple I didn't know. They were just married. And they were talking about they weren't going to have kids because they thought there were too many people in the world. And I pointed it out to them. And I said, the only non, the, the only, I forget how, how I phrase it, but like human minds are the, the most expensive, most valuable resource and the only way to, to further our use of every other natural resource out there. So they were a little yeah. intrigued. I don't. I don't know. I'd never talk to them again. But um, they were they were uh, intrigued, and, and they didn't really have any rebuttal to that. So that was a little bit hopeful. Yeah, it sounds yeah, almost so. a little. There's a whole lot of. Go ahead, Dan. I was going to say it almost sounds a little bit randy, and she was all about the human mind and and being uh, mm-hmm. productive and efficient and solving problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, one note I wanted to make just from the film was that. Once or when he's built his factory, he realizes that the roads are inadequate to get his product out to the world so he can solve more people's problems, satisfy more wants and desires. So he says, I need a better road. I need a four-lane highway. So he calls up the private road company, and they build him a road. So <laughs> yeah. there's your answer, Status. Who will build the roads? <laughs> Onceers. <laughs> the Onceers who need right. a road will hire a company. I think it's called the Instant Road Company or something like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, the one thing I think uh, Seuss missed out in this whole scribe against capitalism is he shows this entrepreneur starting out producing something and then improving it along the way and getting more and more efficient. But he left out the whole seizing the means of production argument. Like, I, th- I th- it seems a little bit odd that uh, he didn't just say to seize it and that he actually showed where it came from. Like, it came from this guy going out and working and saving the money and reinvesting in the business. Hmm. Right. But I didn't mean to derail the conversation too much there. Um, What's the uh, next item up for bid? Uh, Well, you mentioned the road, so the next thing that happens is he clears the land, and he, like, there's, like, a set of shears and then, like, bulldozers, and he just completely clears it all out, and he builds all this housing. Presumably for, you know, like his employees. He kind of like builds up a, I don't know what you want to call it, but almost like a whole city to ser- satisfy his employees and probably uh, presumably more people around it that, you know, his employees will patronize and whatnot. We don't get all that, but 
presumably the this one through this one invention he becomes sort of like a you could say like an Edison type figure where an almost in, you know entire industry springs up around you through this one amazing invention. Oh yeah, they have like parades and, for him and a statue and all this stuff. Right. And and then here's the Lorax running around all angry about everything. And the Wunslers, for some reason, just like throw their garbage on the ground, saying how terrible and polluting these human beings are. And sure, there is garbage around, but it's their own private property. It's their own house. Uh, they could do as they please with it. Um, it seems to be just like another fake argument against capitalists that these people just hate the environment, so they're just going to throw their garbage everywhere. Even though it's their own home, why would they do that? Wouldn't they have a garbage service? In fact, then they show later on um, that they just dump the garbage in a river. Why? Again, just why? Nobody does that. It's not a real thing that happens in the real world, really. I mean, there is the giant, um, you know, garbage pile out in the ocean. But... Uh, the majority of garbage goes into landfills. Am I wrong? Well, at the time when this book was written and the movie came out, weren't most garbage collections like run by the city, like in sewer systems were, you know, dumping raw sewage in the Cuyahoga River and all of these things, like all these super fun cleanup sites today were primarily the result of government stewardship. Like they were just dumping raw sewage into the waterways and uh, so oh, I took the garbage being it. dumped in the river as being that's what the city was doing. Like that's the city government doing that. Right. And let's not forget about zoning. How you know city planners said, okay, industry is going to be over here, and then residence is going to be over here. So that reduced the incentive for the industrial areas, which were located on the waterways and you know near major uh, arteries, to to have the presentable area where people want to live because when you look at pre-zoning people often lived where they worked it reduced crime it reduced commuting but now with zoning the government uh, encouraged industry to stay in one spot and people to live in another commute back and forth using more energy and those areas are empty at night and the value or the the crime goes up and the pollution goes up because there's no one living there the rest of the time to care about what it looks like. Yeah, there's your central home. planning backfiring, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it did seem weird to me that, um, let's see, I have another note on here. Uh, so the Oncers are creating this product and they're satisfying all these human desires. In fact, there's a song that says they're answering humanity's each and every need, and somehow that's a bad thing. Yeah, I took that to be a, a, a slam against advertising. At one point, there's almost like a commercial where they're making this bold claim that it's satisfying all these needs, but yet it's whole, totally evil and like it wouldn't, you wouldn't normally want it unless you were being told that you wanted it. Did you get that vibe from the movie at all or the book? I totally got that. Is this like a, a slam against advertising and making your product known to people? Yeah, like the anti-consumerism. Um, that was pretty prevalent in uh, that era, I think, with uh, John Kenneth Galbraith. He was um, he was the guy who was all about you know consumers are being snookered by advertising, like buy things you don't need because 
you're being hypnotized into it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Interesting that when doesn't come clearly, the book. Yeah, when clearly this this product is obviously amazing. <laughs> but all right. Yeah, I need a fee, a need. Is that what it's called? A need. Need. Yeah, I mean, it, it can literally be like a thousand different uses. They were talking about how it can help with like a heart condition and. Uh, you can use it as a hat, a sweater, a pillow, blankets, curtains, socks, uh, a million other things, which was kind of crazy. Oh, and one other thing I wanted to mention was once the Wunzler family starts um, coming to help the Wunzler in starting the business, they sing a song, and they're saying, um, where is it? Uh, no more holes in our stockings, because now we've got opportunity. So they were poor, and they were migrating to this area to help out their family member who discovers this great product to, you know, enrich their own lives, to take an opportunity and, and improve their own situation. And somehow right. they're, so they're evil like and bad for that. Right. So do you think that Seuss is kind of compromising his message, showing that people are improving, or is he denigrating that? It seems to me that he's denigrating that, like how, e- how terrible these people are trying to better their lives or at the at the expense of the environment according to him. Yeah, I think he's he's speaking ill of them. And I don't know if maybe it's a little bit of history on on him. His dad owned a brewery in uh, New England where he grew up, I think somewhere in Massachusetts. And when the uh, prohibition happened, his brewery got shut down. So his factory got idled and then uh it turns out that the dad got like this sweetheart deal from the mayor to manage the city's park system in exchange for, you know, because his business got shut down. Um, at one point in the movie, and we're totally just all over the map, doesn't matter, who cares? Hmm. Um, Lorax is complaining about the loss of habitat for these indigenous creatures, and he's really got, he's tugging on Wunzler's heartstrings. Um, it's interesting that you would, from a, the Lorax's perspective, why would he... I mean, I understand from you telling a story, you only have a certain number of characters in the story. But in the real world, you wouldn't necessarily go to Warehouser and talk to the president of Warehouser and say, look, you're in the business of cutting down trees, but let me tell you why you shouldn't be in the business of cutting down trees. You would put public pressure on them. You would make this the plight of these animals known to the public. In the Pacific Northwest, we had the spotted owl big drama back in the 80s, and that was the result of environmentalists putting public pressure on the people cutting down the trees. So it's, it's kind of strange that the Lorax would be talking directly to Wunzler, saying that, hey, you shouldn't be following your own best interests. <laughs> really, you should be putting, making, making the plight of these animals known to the public so that they can be informed and weigh their desire for a need versus the how much environmental damage is being done to the environment of these creatures. Does that make more sense? Is that a form that of way? advertising? Yeah. I guess I'm evil. Well, I'd say that's what this book and the movie subsequently are. So Right. But, I mean, even with internally within the story, the Lorax is coming and basically marketing the plight of the animals to Wunzler so you can't be too against marketing because what is, I mean, it, even if you can influence people's subjective value, you can do that 
one way. You can do that both ways. You know, the lorax is trying to influence the subjective value towards protecting habitat and and having more wildlife and away from having more needs. And Mm -hmm. perhaps the you know one slur is going the opposite direction. Uh, That's one thing I thought in this this kind of straw man version of capitalism is that there's no price system. Did you notice that? I mean, he talks about money. It doesn't ever talk about prices, and uh, in in the real right, world, this is, what I, this is where I was trying to go with, with the, the poem <laughs> or the the revision. My revisionist Lorax is to to have the Lorax come in as like this investment fund manager and say, "Hey, you're you're burning up your capital here. This is you know this is your, really your property, and you're burning up all this capital, and you're destroying your your source of." income in the truffula trees uh tell you what you're only going to make x dollars i'll give you that much for the land because i expect to get this return from it every year because i only i only use it as fast as it grows and that's just like the the rational capitalist way of of seeing that resource so to me that that was the big thing is that why didn't someone come in and say hey you're you're uh wasting away all this all this income let me just buy it from you up front if you have such a short time horizon let me or time preference let me buy it up front and i'll i want the long time preference i want that recurring income every year and i'm willing to pay now to have that future income there's no rationality like that you make an excellent point about prices i mean is Wentzler just the worst businessman ever because yeah, once the supply of his needs, is, the supply of these trees goes down to like almost zero, the price of each need would skyrocket for being so incredibly rare. Uh huh. So if he maybe by that time somebody price, had invented uh, polyester needs. Right. Yeah, and where is the competition in all of this? Like, there's no competitor coming out and, and making an alternative like you were saying polyester just now but it's like this total monopoly situation where his only goal is to increase output supply be damned, supply of your inputs be damned you know, it yeah. didn't make any sense yeah it seemed just like a child's understanding of the world and economics and he wrote this probably when he was what, 20s, 30s who knows, do we know uh, yeah I got a note on that he was probably about 40 or so uh, he wrote it in, it's like 1971, and when was this guy born? He would have been, he would have been quite old at that time because he started writing in the 30s. Yeah, he was born in 1904, so yeah, he was like 65. Jeez, this is late kind in his life, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still has a childlike understanding of the world. <laughs> yeah, one of the quotes he says towards the end here is. Biggering and biggering and biggering for the sake of biggering. But he doesn't seem to realize that no more trees means no more needs, no more jobs, no more family, no more friends. And he's just left in this empty factory in a polluted environment. And then, of course, he has that sign up that says unless. And it's something to do with, you know, caring will fix it. (laughs) All we have to do is care. Uh, Yeah. And like you said, this is childish, but look at. Uh, in recent political campaigns, I think even even Hillary Clinton was talking about the short sightedness of business, and they're just looking out for this quarter. And you know, you have to have the government come in and bring in some 
some long-term thinking. So this, it's not even a child. If it is childish, it's something that most people have seemed to have never grown out of. Well, didn't they say that trust spoke at like a fifth grade level and that resonated well with people because it truly is idiocracy? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you mentioned Clinton, and I think that might be a good transition point to the newer version. Um, I know it's not as familiar to all of us because we didn't really watch too much of it, but I did notice that the uh, heartthrob girl, like the, the girl next door that the boy is interested in, is a uh, ginger-haired girl who looks a lot like Chelsea Clinton. <laughs> she does. <laughs> and now the new villain is... Um, so the premise of the story at this point is that uh, they live in this plastic city where everything is plastic, there's no real trees or anything, and there's this capitalist who sells them canned air. It's O'Hare's air. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's sort of like space balls or whatever. Um. But, uh, like, they're within this city environment, and they don't see out of it, so they don't see all the destroyed trees and terrible environment uh, outside the walls, and apparently O'Hare has an interest in keeping that secret uh, from from the people. So, Robert, you saw this one a, a while back. Do you recall enough of it to give a little bit of a rundown on how this is different than uh, the original one? Uh, I think you did as good a job. Just you talking just now reminded me more of the story. Um, but prior to that, I don't even, I couldn't even have told you that that had happened. Um, it sounds like, what, the, the Simpsons movie? Wasn't that, they lived in a bubble? Well, the, the government came and put a bubble over the city because of the pollution. And Tom Hanks promoted it. Was that, that what that was about? That was part of the movie, wasn't it? I, I don't remember. I remember the bubble. I don't remember exactly why. Or was it? Yeah, was it containment? Was it quarantine or something like that? For some reason. Yeah, yeah. they had a quarantine. They had a quarantine. And that's the Simpsons movie. movie, right? Yeah. 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 All right. Well, that was our Simpsons movie episode, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I. Uh, yeah, I don't remember too much about the the Lorax 3D movie, uh, so I can't really speak on it. All right, well, I, I can tell a little bit on it because I, I took some notes when I was watching it on the old YouTube. There's a version of it that I'll post down below that every time they say the word tree, like a drinking game, they increase the speed by 5%. So this 90-minute movie ends up being 26 minutes. <laughs> kind of an interesting... Um, at the end, can you actually understand what's happening? Oh, no. No, in fact, uh, it gets so fast that the audio cuts out because it's mm -hmm. just too fast to even recreate it. <laughs> I guess okay. they say tree a lot. Yeah, I I saw that in the results, but I didn't watch it because, it, yeah, it said 26 minutes or whatever it was. And I was like, oh, that can't be <laughs> get enough out of the story to understand it. But go ahead. You made some notes on it. Fantastic. Yeah, so I got a couple of notes. So there's the O'Hare's bottle there, you know, reminiscent of Spaceballs. And, and side note, um, I actually did buy a can of uh, air well, about 10 years ago. Our secretary in our office was buying one. She was telling me about it. And then... And, it was like, uh, if you buy three, you get them for a less, lower price or whatever. So I was like, oh, sure, yeah, I'll buy one, whatever. So you're like 15 bucks, and I got this can of air that was sitting on my desk for like five years. Uh, anyway. Well, did you ever open it? No. Hanging it? No, no. But apparently it was supposed to, like, um, you know, enhance your uh, clarity of thought and, like, be super healthy and all this stuff. But it's a can of freaking air, man. Anyway. Side note. I was easily duped by the advertising as relayed by the secretary in my office. Galbraith was right. 
Damn it. All right, so uh, mm-hmm. in the new one, we've got uh, Ed Helms, Zac Efron, Taylor Swift, and Betty White being 3D CGI characters. Uh, there's this ginger girl who looks like Chelsea Clinton, who the Zac Efron character is trying to impress, and she really likes these truffle off trees, uh, even though she's never seen one in real life. And so she paints this big mural of it um, on her house and shows it to the Zac Efron guy. And he's like, oh, she really likes these. You know, I bet if I got her one of these trees, she would like me. And so that kind of becomes the whole uh, point of the film. He goes out and escapes outside of the bubble of the city and runs into the Wunzler who's living outside uh, the city in his factory in this polluted environment with all the trees cut down. And then the Wunzler tells him the story of how the trees all got cut down and and the uh, needs that were created, the business that he generated. Um, but uh, just an interesting side note as well, when O'Hare's bottled air, he's making a commercial about the bottled air, and they basically do a beer commercial complete with, you know, bikini-clad girls and, like, party time and oh, how refreshing it is to have, you know, bottled air in plastic and uh, so people will buy it because it's in plastic or some something they say. Some of their yes-men say that. But uh, when he talks about running into the Lorax when he's chopping down the trees, he first starts his factory, this one sort of guy, and the Lorax comes down and is like, hey, what are you doing? And the Lorax tries to dismantle his, uh, his first factory. He starts destroying it. He starts, like, knocking down some of the supports and then the, once our guy is like fixing it, and he's like, what are you doing? You know, leave it alone. And then he goes inside this factory where he lives, and then the Lorax breaks in like a home invasion and, you know, starts telling him you can't do that, which seemed kind of weird, you know? Like, he's basically being this uh, little Antifa protester dude who's smashing, smashing stuff and breaking into places and committing felonies. And justifying it by saying that you're aggressing against me, so therefore I'm just defending myself. Right, right. Uh, shortly thereafter, um, through some like song sequence, the Wunzler is traveling down the river and goes over a waterfall and uh, nearly drowns, and Lorax saves him, saves his life, and promises that he won't cut down any more trees. But then his product takes off, and he starts making a lot of money. And so it's like this greed that takes over and makes him break his promise to the Lorax. So it's, it's, I think, a mechanism to um, say that the Lorax, by saving his life, was the good character and that the Wunzler meant to do right by him, but then greed overtook him and made him do something that he wouldn't normally have done. So it's not that the Wunzler's necessarily the bad guy, but it's that greed is the bad guy. You know, I think it seems to be far more a failure of greed wouldn't if he was really truly greedy and he's doing all these things in you know at the expense of all these animals and whatnot and he has no incentive to be a whatever a good steward to the environment wouldn't he if he was going to service his greed wouldn't he want to plant as many trees as possible because that's the source of his income that's the source of his his money if he's going to service his greed if at some point it seems like he's like well, I got enough money. I'm not greedy anymore. It's like some sort of temporary greed argument. Yeah, but who's really being greedy? 
I mean, is it the Oncer guy who's actually providing value to others or is it the Lorax who's saying, no, you can't do anything with any of the trees that I don't even own? I mean, that's a little bit greedy, right? Speaking for things that aren't even yours? He's making a claim for those things, yeah. He's claiming dominion over them, regardless of any real claim he has. Yeah, right. And uh, it comes back to that subjective value of of everybody in the society that do they value the, the usefulness of the needs or the beauty of of the unspoiled nature. And here the Lorax is using force to tip the scales in one direction without regard for for what the people actually want, as as uh, shown by their purchases and the way they spend their money. Right. So its customers clearly desire these needs far more than they desire the or are upset about the environmental impact right mm-hmm. or else they wouldn't support the company that's doing it yeah exactly uh so oh another note about when he starts selling the product and breaks his promise um another supporting thing of that is that his family comes to help him start the business and they're um shown to be greedy and, and unthoughtful. And so it's like a demonstration of nepotism and they help turn once they're against the Lorax and, and breaking his promise. And then there's this rock opera type scene where he's playing the guitar and singing about how, you know, great it is to exploit resources and create all these products and not care about the environment. It reminded me of the uh, guitarist playing in um, Fury Road when they're doing the battles. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> kind of reminds me of that. And uh, I might find a clip of that and post it down below just because it's so ridiculous, like the lyrics that he says in this. I mean, it's just like this childlike mentality of what capitalism is, like we were speaking about before. Um, but then the uh, the last tree gets cut down and the factory gets shut down shortly after this. And one of the guys who um, is like the, the janitor cleaning up the mess is the O'Hare character. Uh, who, you know, later on, because, you know, it sort of like shifts in time a little bit, the story. So at the beginning, O'Hare is, is in the Plastic City, and he's the the guy, he's the capitalist selling the air. Um, but when the story's recounted, he was the janitor in the Sneed factory. And once the factory shuts down and uh, all this pollution is, has happened, he comes up with an idea, a solution, of selling clean air to people. So he was taking a bad situation and making it better. Yet he's the villain in the movie as well. Lovely. <laughs> Humans were so evil. Oh, our interests are so terrible. Yeah. Um, and then uh, he discovers that the Zac Efron character, who's trying to impress the girl with the tree, uh, he gets worried that once those trees are rediscovered, that they're going to be planted everywhere again. And clean up the air, and then there's going to be no need for his product. So he's now trying to stifle competition. He's trying to maintain the need for his air in plastic bottles product. So it's sort of that, um, you've probably both heard the conspiracy theories about who killed the electric car or the hydrogen car, and like big oil supposedly bought the technology to keep it off the market and all this stuff. Um, And there's an old video of uh, Jack Nicholson back when he was uh, in his heyday, um, 
promoting a hydrogen car in like the 1970s and he gets down behind it and like huffs on the tailpipe and just breathes it in. Uh, I don't know, it just seems seems really bizarre. You guys have well, any comment yeah. on any of that so far? No, but I had a thought that just this 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 whole movie and these movies just seem to be one guy whining about other people's preferences. Like your preferences are bad and wrong, whereas my preferences are so evolved and wonderful and caring, and you just don't care. Yeah, benevolent. The, the things that you care about are invalid, and the things that I care about are valid. And it seems to be that you know if you want to put out some propaganda, try and convince people of one thing, fine. I'm all for it. It's a voluntary thing. I'm a big boy. I can handle your Marxist ideas. But when you want to use the violent arm of government and coerce and force people to act according to your values, well, that's where you lose me, pal. And I think, and I noticed this, like I said, it's been a while since I saw the New York movie, but looking at the synopsis here, uh, this O'Hare had, like, goons who were, and he was prepared to use violence to stop this alternative form of clean air from trees. And I think, you know, as anarchists, as libertarians, we can, we can say, we can denounce that and say, you know, we don't want violence in, in support of a business or, of you know, monopoly profits, just like we don't want violence in, in, uh, in support of preventing those things and preventing human flourishing. But the idea is that we want peaceful interaction and voluntary interaction regardless of which side is right. attempting to use violence. Doesn't it, doesn't it seem like they always do that, though, in movies? It's like, I like, watch like they have no imagination TV and movies where, people... like, it's not enough for them to be, like, some evil capitalist. Like, okay, yeah. so they're, they're a, a, an entrepreneur and they're a capitalist, but then they just happen to also be this super evil villain that's got a bunch a of goons boss. and he's going to go around killing people. And, yeah, he's like a mob boss yeah. character. Yeah, it's like it's like you're either uh, Antifa or you're the Mafia. Right. Yeah, and of course, we denounce any form of aggressive violence, um, even the legal uh, aggressive violence that is metered out by the government. So just uh, kind of bizarre, this whole distorted uh, view of um, how things work in both of these films. Yeah, I mean, I want to kind of give a pass to a guy who's writing some sort of weird fantasy fiction. Um, there's a, a part of me, at least, that says, you know, you're an artist. You can create whatever you want. You can create some story where the rules of the world don't exist or in the way that they do in the real world, right? You can create a world with just crazy rules. No rules. Who cares? But that's clearly not the case here with this guy's work. This guy was trying to put forth his political philosophy out into the world about what he thinks things should happen. And it just betrays his lack of understanding of economics in the real world. Um, so, yeah, if you want to if you want to just create some story where nothing makes sense. Fine, but don't tell me that it applies to the real world. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hey, one more piece of uh, symbolism from the 2012 version which actually, I just looked that up. I thought it was a little bit older than that. Uh, but towards the end, they knocked down a statue of the O'Hare character, this golden statue, because he was like 
the benefactor for the whole town and he was looked up to until this whole story happens and he's discovered to be this terrible person. But it reminded me... Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it's the sim- symbolism of knocking down a statue of Saddam Hussein, thus saying that capitalism, or a capitalist, is an evil dictator. Wow. Mm. <laughs> Can you get more overt in your <laughs> propaganda? <laughs> and, of course, there's, you know, hugs all around at the end, and it makes everything okay. So all you got to do is care. Uh, and, and, of course, they say the unless thing again. Mm. Um which I think I got a shot of that, like a little screenshot. Let me find that. I'll post it down below as well. There's a little quote for it. Yeah, it says, Unless right, so unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Right. Because it's just lack of caring. Not government force. Okay, um, well, does anybody else have any more notes before we kind of wrap it up and get to a uh, conclusion? On a lighter note, I wonder if today in the Trump era they would have had to rebrand the Lorax a little bit so he's not orange and blonde. <laughs> yeah, he does kind of look like him, doesn't he? <laughs> Trump had right. a big bushy mustache. Yeah, they can't have him being all Mr. Environmentalist, right? <laughs> Yeah, so um, I do have a few notes on Dr. Seuss himself, which are kind of fun. You could throw mm-hmm. some of those in here. Have at it, sir. All right. So just pick out a few choice ones here. Um, during World War II, he was an editorial cartoonist for a left-leaning New York City newspaper. He also enlisted in the Army and was in charge of creating the propaganda films for... Uh, support of the war. He was a big fan of the Soviet Union and Stalin. Um, didn't like Hitler, though, and thought that putting the Japanese in internment camps was quite all right. In fact, he said that uh, every single um, Japanese person was a closet uh, traitor. <laughs> wow. Um, later in life, he moved to La Jolla, California, which is just outside of San Diego, and there was another Dr. Seuss who lived there, Dr. Hans Seuss, and apparently the Postal Service was so inept that they would constantly get each other's mail. Hmm. Gotta love it. So that's my trivia for this episode. Nice work, Daniel. And he wrote a, uh, in in 1939, he wrote an adult book about uh, seven sisters who were nudists or something. I forget it. Oh, really? Yeah, it was actually an adult book. I think it was one of his earliest things that he wrote. Hmm. So he didn't just write kid stuff and propaganda. Right. Yeah, what are some of the other, Daniel? I know his other work is also fairly propagandistic. I know you sent me some stuff about it. you want to just list that off right now? Yeah, so there's the Lorax, which is about environmentalism and anti-consumerism. There's a book called The Sneetches, which is about racial equality. The Butter Battle Book, which is about the arms race. Yertle the Turtle, which was about Hitler and anti-authoritarianism. How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which is criticizing of materialism and consumerism of the Christmas season. And then Horton Hears a Who, which is about anti-isolationism and internationalism. Uh, so he was uh, fairly 
outspoken about the isolationists back in um, the World War II era who didn't want to go to war, who thought that you know being entangled in um, foreign wars was no no business of ours. And of course, you know FDR went out of his way to entice the Japanese to attack Pearl Harbor and thus goad the American public into wanting to get into that war. Um, but uh, Dr. Seuss was actually very critical of like Charles Lindbergh, um, who was uh, uh, advocating for staying out of the war. So he is very much a pro-interventionist guy. Oh, yeah, big time. Uh, oh, and one yeah, other last thing is um, he called himself Dr. Seuss because his father had always wanted him to practice medicine. Um, and, of course, uh, I don't know if we mentioned this before, but he ended up dropping out of college. Um, but when he was in his 50s, Dartmouth College, where he um, had gone to school for a time, awarded him an honorary doctorate, finally justifying doctor in his pen name. Mm. Kevin, you were going to say something? Oh, I just said he was an FDR liberal. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely strikes me as that. I've got, uh, just on Wikipedia, look, looking at the Lorax page, uh, another piece of trivia, the National Education Association, uh, I think that's a teacher's union, right? And in 2007, named the Lorax one of the top 100 books for children. Gross. Though <laughs> so, you know when the NEA loves it, it's probably not very good. <laughs> yeah, it's probably bad. That is, that's, that's disgusting. Yeah. Um, all right, well, if, if nobody has anything else, uh, it is a short kind of a story, short book, mm-hmm. short movie. Um, let's wrap it up and do some final conclusion slash review type situations. Um, would you recommend this sort of thing? Who should watch this? Anything like that? Well, Kevin, go ahead, man. Tell us what you think. Um, like, like you said, I probably, um, I'm sure my kids will see it at some point. Hopefully they'll uh, be smart enough by then to, to recognize the flaws. And uh, who should watch it? Anybody who wants a good laugh at it left at the expense. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, hopefully you have some understanding of economics before you watch this. I really, you know, read Hazlitt, read some Rothbard, read some good stuff um, mm-hmm. before you can watch this, uh, just as a primer, as you can, so you can get all the jokes. I've seen uh, quite a few people on the, the Tom Woods Show group talking about their kids having these incredible insights and and being able to see through these fallacies that so many adults believe. And I'm just amazed. It's like you have to, they, you have to teach it out of them to see. It's, it's so obvious when you haven't been indoctrinated what economic truth is, and yet so many adults seem to be completely ignorant of it. So I, I just love hearing those stories about how kids come up and say, uh, I I can't think of an example now, but just have these really great economic insights when they're like seven and eight. And it's like they get it. So it, it just gives me hope that, you know, we get kids out of the government run schools that uh, things will start to get better. Absolutely. Yeah. If we can get more and more people out of those things, those indoctrination camps. Because uh, I, I don't I don't know about you, but I never learned any kind of real economics in high school or college. Uh, maybe that's some of my own fault. I was more of an artsy guy, and I went to a liberal arts school, so I didn't learn any real economics. But I could imagine 
that government-run schools don't have an incentive to teach real economics. They're more about the um, interventionist-type philosophy right. in economics. Granting. Or teaching that economics is some sort of fancy national accounting, you know, like Keynesianism. It's just, it's right. accounting, you know, Y equals G plus C plus I plus X, uh, or no, I can't think of it. X yeah, or this down. complicated uh, control yeah. panel for getting right. the results that you want, you know, right. this social so, program or that yeah, social just, program. So just that economics is, is uh, some sort of math, like um, differential equations meets accounting when real economics, like that stuff that came from Mises and von Bauwerk and, and all their predecessors, or all their uh, intellectual descendants is so much more, you know, and, and it really is insights into how people live and how people act. You know, Rothbard was all about that, and Mises of praxeology, and mm-hmm. I, that's what I I love. And I wish now that I, you know, how much I love economics. I, I almost wish I could go back and do economics under one of these guys or, you know, one of the schools like George Mason, that's pretty decent when it comes to economics. And, uh, I just find it fascinating, you know, and, and so much more interesting than schools, even my college class made it out to be. Of course, my college economics class, I'm pretty sure was, was, uh, my, the professor was a socialist. So that doesn't help. He was also my sociology professor. So. Well, then it's I redundant. Didn't anything about either one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah so Daniel, are you going to watch this um, watch this movie with your children or wait till they get older and explain or trust in them to uh, understand what's at play here? You know, my wife reminded me that we actually did watch this with our youngest uh, maybe a year or two ago. And I probably uh, recall now that we turned it off um, during the rock opera thing where he was singing all the terrible stuff about how greed is evil and capitalist is evil. So we won't be watching it again with the kids. I mean, it's sort of until you know what to look for. It's a children's story. Everyone knows about Dr. Seuss and, you know, children's books, Cat in the Hat, all that stuff. Uh, the places you'll go, every frickin' high school graduation ceremony, they read that crap. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to be sharing it with the kids uh, anytime soon. Um, I think maybe once they're fully developed in their in their thinking a bit more, then they can watch it and have a good laugh at it, like Kevin was saying, and if they want to have a good laugh at leftist thought. But I don't want to shape them with this kind of a thing because I think it is just so over-propaganda with a total lack of understanding of how economics actually works. And its intended purpose is to get you all worked up about uh, advocating for the government to go in and do something and control people and uh, make things that uh, need to be engineered a certain way. Um, which ends up being bad for everybody. It's it's not a very good story. I don't like it. No, no, it's a very sad anti-human story where there are no there are no winners. Yeah, I mean, except for all the people who are satisfied with the million and one uses of the need. I mean, they were the winners in the story. <laughs> the people but, who uh, got it before the, all the trees were destroyed. Right. Exactly. But as we discussed, that wouldn't happen because there'd be an interest in maintaining their supply. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining yeah, us. You've been an you excellent guest. Uh, so why don't you remind everyone um, where they can find your work and maybe mention any projects that you're working on, and then we will uh, say our goodbyes. 
Yep, my uh, my blog is at klecu.com slash blog, or you can get to it straight from klecu.com also. And uh, the Laura X story is still my most recent post. I don't post all that often. And I'm going to make an effort to get that revised version of Laura X out that is more pro uh, pro industry or pro liberty and uh, pro capitalism. And uh, I've been tossed around the idea of a, of a book. Uh, sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent. You guys can cut this out if you want to. But um, my wife and I, we like to watch, uh, you know, those British murder shows and, and crime. And I've always, I don't know of any uh, uh, anarchist libertarian books or, or anything written from, uh, wh- how would that be handled in a stateless society? So, you know, we have a lot of theory. We have, and I love For a New Liberty, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, and, and machinery freedom and those things. But I, I just feel like a good fiction that that deals with these issues and puts it kind of in a realistic light would we go a long way towards easing people's fears about uh, not having a state to protect them. I think that sounds like a great idea. Um, Robert's actually working on a book. I don't know if he'd consider it a realistic book, Robert, um, since it's about wizards. But it is related to somebody going out and providing a service and the government rewarding him and, and initiating violence against him. Hmm. Yeah, it is. It's set in a fantasy universe, but I think the themes are universal. Um, mm-hmm. So just because, yeah, he's a he's a wizard and he can do amazing things, um, the principles at play are all the same. He's got to be regulated like a proton pack. <laughs> there would be a private uh, regulator that would be an incentive for a in- person to employ Daniel. And don't forget that's insurance. Right. Indeed. Actually, well, that's in the book. So yeah. Cool. But yes. Well, right. very good. Very good. At least you're maintaining consistency in your own universe. <laughs> I like that kind of a thing. Good. So Daniel, um, happy Earth Day, buddy. Really, really appreciate everybody coming on, and listening to this episode. Um, like we said at the beginning, uh, you can be a capitalist and you can be an environmentalist. Um, those two things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, it's just the the solution that one proposes over the other is di- vastly different. I advocate for private property, and those private property owners would have an incentive to maintain their land, whereas the socialist generally cries to government to use violence against property owners to act a certain way, um, where... I advocate for a nonviolent solution. So, happy Earth Day, everybody. That's right. Go and enjoy the fruits of what human industry has yielded from the Earth. Absolutely. Yeah, indeed. Well, hey, thanks, folks, everyone, for joining us for our special Earth Day episode. We run ActualAnarchy.com and ReadRothbard.com. We've got a Tom Woods Liberty Classroom link. We've got new podcast artwork up in the iTunes and Google Play Music. Uh, we've got a bunch of Amazon links and other things like that to check out. So go ahead and click on some of those and buy some of the fruits of uh, your fellow human's labor to satisfy your wants and desires and improve your own life as well. So thanks again for joining us, and we will catch you guys on the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. Not the same bat time, not the same bat channel, because this is a special. 
but we will get back to our regularly scheduled program on Sunday. And that will be the movie War Dogs, right, Robert? That's right, baby. Peace out, Freedom Nerds. Thanks, guys. Chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, 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 do